in January, but I'm also glad to be back. I'm glad to be here with you. So from now through Easter, we're in the Gospel of Luke on the journey that Jesus takes with his disciples to Jerusalem. And what we're going to be looking at every Sunday are the parables that occur along that journey on the road to Jerusalem. And a really great thing about a parable is that it can have so many different meanings. There's not one right answer. If there were, I would know it and I would tell it to you. But in any given parable, there's not one right answer. So when we ask you to hear a parable, uh, to think about it, consider it, and share what you think it means with your neighbor, you're right. Whatever you said, if you engaged that parable, you're right. (laughs) A parable needs a framework. It needs a curb so that we can get that right meaning, that right understanding on it. So the best curb, the best framework when considering a parable in Scripture is to look at the context. What happens before that parable? Uh, Is there anything that's said after that parable? And so I'm going to back up. The scripture passage that you heard earlier that Ryan read for you. And I'm going to tell you what happens right beforehand. So we're in Luke chapter 13. And these are verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent... You will all perish just as they did. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the story of God for the people of God. Would you stay with me? Thanks be to God. An author named Karen Wright Marsh reminded me about Julian of Norwich this week, and she taught me some about Julian of Norwich. Julian lived 650 years ago, and she was the first woman to write in the people's English. We actually don't know her given name because she is called by the name of the church where she lived, St. Julian's. In the English city of Norwich. So you heard me right. She lived in her church. (laughs) She was an anchorist, a regular Christian person who chose to live in a cell that was built on an outside wall of her church. Can you imagine if we just took one of these outside walls and added three little walls to it and said, that's your new home. You get to live there. That's what they did, anchorites. She lived in a cell, 
In fact, she took a vow before her bishop where she pledged to remain forever in that cell, forever in that place attached to her church. A part of the vow service involved a ritual burial where she was entombed with Christ, promising to remain in that enclosure attached to the church no matter what. And some anchorites who lived during these medieval years died in their cells when attackers came and ransacked the town or burned down the church. They went down with the church. The anchorite devoted themselves to prayer and to devotion, and yet they remained anchored to their community. They remained anchored to the people who were around them in their town. So Julian's cell wasn't an undisturbed getaway. This wasn't a choice that she made to escape the world that she was born into. In fact, she had windows. You can see on the picture behind me. We think from her writing, she had windows on three of the walls in her cell. So from one window, she could see into the church. She could see the worship service that was going on in the church. She could receive communion. She could speak to the priests who were in the church. From another window, she could see what was going on in the town, the hustle and bustle of the town. And in fact, I imagine that that window was kind of like a drive through window <laughs> because we're told that people would come to her and ask for her counsel, for her insight and her advice. And then the third window that she had looked into a garden. On Monday afternoon, it was early evening, the sun was still out of this week, I was sitting on my couch, I was watching the local news, and I was startled by a sudden, loud crash. I knew exactly what had happened. A window in the front of my house had been shattered by a baseball I went into the living room to check the windows there. They were all intact. So then I went into my 10-year-old son Daniel's room. And sure enough, there was glass everywhere. Not big pieces of glass, but tiny little shards of glass glistening from every inch of the carpet in his room and tiny crevices across pillows, bedding. It was a huge mess. My first inclination was just to close the door and look for a match. Because I was like, let's just start over. That is a disaster and nobody should go in there. That's a mess. The thing that I'm keenly aware of this week after looking at the scripture passage and living through the days of the week is that every window has the potential to bring bad news, right? Julian knew it to be true. Townspeople would walk up to her window and tell her their troubles and their tragedies. We know that during the time that she lived, the Black Death swept through her town three different times, killing more than half the people in the town. I'm sure she heard about that. Some even speculate that she became an anchorite after losing her own husband and her children to the plague. From her window into the worshiping community, we know that she got news that there were three different men who were claiming to be the rightful pope of the time. 
And we know that she got news that there were convents that were in moral collapse. She may very well have seen John Wycliffe, the Protestant, bound to be a heretic in her very own sanctuary uh, for a fiery death because that death just happened half a mile away from her church. So she got bad news from the window that was open into the worshiping community as well. But what about that window that's open into her garden? That must have been a breath of fresh air, right? What possible bad news could you get from a window that goes into a garden? Well, what about this? In your garden, there is a tree. It's planted. It's taking up space. And it's bearing no fruit. That tree is just wasting soil. The Gospel of Luke says a man had a fig tree. It was planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit, and he found none. Now, it's possible that planting a vineyard in a fig tree was a common practice, and it was a good practice, because the fig tree would have been good for the vines. They are tall, they're strong, they would have provided structure, a place for the vines to grow well. But the parable says that this fig tree had no fruit, so The landowner goes to the gardener and says, for three years I've been looking for fruit on this tree and there isn't any. Cut it down. I'm aware that it's not easy to be a landowner, invested, responsible, dependent on what is not controllable, right? It can be frustrating to be the landowner, to be in charge of the land. The gardener says to the landowner, give it another year. I'll dig around it. And one translation that the pastors all liked this week said, I'll dig around it and I'll dung it. (laughs) I'll put fertilizer on it. I'll dung it. And then if there's still nothing, then we'll cut it down. At the beginning of Luke chapter 13, those who are traveling with Jesus know about bad news. And I believe that they tell Jesus about this bad news and they want to know what Jesus thinks about the bad news that's going on around them. They say, did you hear about the Galileans who are making a pilgrimage to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem and Pilate's troops intercepted them and senselessly and brutally killed the worshipers? Did you hear about that? Did you hear how he mixed their blood With the blood of their good intentions. What do you think about that, Jesus? Why did that happen? And then they say, or how about those who were killed? Those who were killed in a building accident that's just south of the temple in Siloam. When the tower collapsed. What do you make of that, Jesus? Was that God's will? In a sermon on this very passage, preacher Fred Craddock wrote that we modern Christians speak to one another with great certainty about the will of God. When Jesus very seldom spoke about God's will and he struggled with the will of God for hours in prayer. I think it's highly likely that as they're traveling to Jerusalem, this first part of the journey, Jesus is asked, by his disciples about God's will. In the midst of these two tragedies, they say, in our world, why did they happen? What's God's will? Why these people, Jesus? And Jesus' reply is a little bit stingy, because Jesus turns the tables 
on those who are talking to him about the tragedies that have happened in their world. He says, let's not talk about the tragedies and God's will, but let's instead focus on you. He says to them, and this is repeated twice after each incident that they tell him about, do you think that they were worse sinners? Do you think that they were more guilty? Unless you repent, you too will perish. Unless you repent, you too will perish. The concept or the theme of repentance is found more in Luke's gospel than any other gospel. So I want to look at that just a little bit. I'm going to jump around the Bible a bit. Hang in there with me for just a few minutes. We're going to go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel. Remember John the Baptist in chapter 3. We hear that John the Baptist is preaching. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. Yeah, that's when it shows up. And here is a part of his message to the crowd. This is what John the Baptist says to the crowd. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and will be thrown into the fire. So the crowd that's hearing John the Baptist replies with something that I imagine sounds like, yikes, (laughs) what should we do? And John the Baptist pretty much says, examine yourself. Put the focus on you, he says. If you have two shirts, give one to someone who has none. Do the same with food. Don't extort or take advantage of other people. Be content. And then he says, and one who is more powerful than I will come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So then in chapter 4, when Jesus accepts this mantle as the one who is more powerful than John the Baptist, he goes into the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll, he reads from Isaiah 61, and he proclaims in his reading the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And so when you jump back to Isaiah 61 and look at the year of the Lord's favor, it is for the poor, it is for the brokenhearted, the prisoners, and those who mourn. They will be called, verse 3 says, oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So I think this year that the tree needs in the parable is the year of the Lord's favor, where the Messiah is revealed. It's the very time that the fig tree needs to bear fruit. And the gardener says, the gardener says to the landowner, put down that axe, dig around it, put fertilizer on it, give it a year, and let's see if it produces fruit. Fruit in the Gospel of Luke kind of looks like Isaiah 61. It looks like kindness. It looks like giving to those who have none. And it looks like restoration for those who are persecuted. I've wondered this week where I fit in in this parable. Which character am I? Am I the landowner put out by the ability of the tree to waste my time? And to waste my energy? Sometimes I'm the landowner. Am I the fig tree? (laughs) In need of some attention and a second chance? I make a pretty good fig tree. (laughs) 
Am I the gardener? Am I the gardener bringing divine wisdom, patience, the promise that ultimately restoration will get the final word? Every now and then, on a good day. Rabbi Eleazar taught that a person should repent on the day of their death. But his disciples took that teaching and they said a person could die any day. So all of life should be repentance. And I think that's a good idea. When repentance is about a continual monitoring of how my life is lining up with the kingdom of God, it's a good thing. It's usually not too painful to dig a trench, put a little dung on it, requires some work, right? But it's not as painful as cut it down and throw it into the fire. And I think that kind of repentance, that everyday kind of repentance, is a kind of nurturing that we do for ourselves. And when we nurture ourselves that way, our lives bear fruit. There's a practice, a spiritual discipline called the daily examine that I'm taking on during Lent. I want to show it to you. And if you want to join me uh, some during Lent, there are cards with this practice written on it that you will find as you leave worship this morning. Um, The daily examine, I think, is a kind of realignment that you do at the end of the day. And so you go through these steps. And as I've done it this week, I haven't even reached for a pen yet. I've just been doing it in my mind. It has not required a lot of me. But here are the steps. The first step is gratitude. As you think about the events of your day, what are you thankful for? The next step is willingness. Where did I say yes to God, yes to life during the day? The second or the third is about willfulness. Where did I say no to life? Where did I ignore what God was doing today? The next is turn around, which is what repentance is about. That's what repentance means. So where do I want to do things differently? Where do I want to turn around? And then the last is just to ask for clearer vision for the next day. I'm taking this on through Lent, and if you want to join me, you you find a card as you leave this morning. Um, I think that this is one way that we can regularly check the alignment of our life and whether or not it's lining up with what God is up to. Well, I think I need to tell you, the other perspective of the broken window in my house this week. So while I thought it looked like devastation, my husband Keith thought it looked like celebration because the 10-year-old had thrown the ball from across the street and had enough power in his arm to finally break the window. (laughs) If you know any quote of Julian of Norwich, you know this quote. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Julian of Norwich was not an isolationist, and she didn't live in a world that was a better, safer place than we do. I'm quite certain that she knew deep pain, and she knew tragedy. But like Jesus... She avoided speaking of pain and tragedy as God's will. Instead, she had this life of focus and devotion and prayer, and she had confidence in God's good will. There is a story that's told 
about a vision that she had while she held a hazelnut in the palm of her hand. She examined the hazelnut and she asked the question, what is this? The response came, this is everything that's made. This is all of creation. How does it hold together? She asked. It lasts and will always last because God loves it. Everything and every one of us held together, sustained and kept and restored by God's good love. That's our promise.